As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Football's most timeless hashtag classy touch of all. The art of second half capitulations. Why Arsenal are just like the NHS. The relentless class of 92 content machine. The specific things that bookend the Monday to Friday Premier League news cycle. And the parallel universe that is the other Andre Villas-Boas. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 97 of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry and my right-hand man today is David Walker. Now, David, I'm not saying that some footballing interviews are inherently quite predictable before they even happen, but but Steve Bruce, I'm told is on 998 games as a manager. And um, that's that that related interview it, it isn't just so vivid in my head. I feel like I can almost taste it. Both the, both the vibe and the specifics of that interview are so in my blood as, as a concept. <laughs> um, every word of it, I feel like, has already, already happened. You know, we talked about him just being sort of stuck in this permanently weary loop recently. I think this, is my, this might be a nice little break for Steve to be able to talk about something with a bit more happiness and positivity as opposed to his ongoing yeah, purgatory at Newcastle United. How do you th- how do you think it's going to go then? Come on, you tell us how you think no, it's going well, to go it, in your head. He'll mention his wife and 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 how, you know, in a kind of hilarious context it's been difficult for her all these years and how he's had his ups and downs and how it's harder now with social media and all that sort of stuff. And but yeah, a few jokes thrown in. But yeah, I feel like this interview's already happened. Um, but I'm looking forward to it nonetheless. I'm very dis- I'm very disappointed that his um, his 999th game then will be at Vicarage Road this Saturday. We've missed out on the honour of welcoming Steve Bruce into the 1000 club could, by one game. He could get game. sacked. He could get sacked after his 999th <laughs> game. That would be awful. That would be awful. Um, that's that's too that's too heartbreaking for me for the for the Steve Bruce pantomime. Um, but speaking of world weary figures, our guest Pemeza Harlan Dix today is he's my Barclays bellwether a man once described by the face magazine as 32 year old British writer Clive Martin it's <laughs> Clive Martin how are you doing yeah I'm good thanks how are you guys very well very well you're a very observant fellow where are you at as a kind of football slash Premier League consumer these days I'm loving it I'm loving the, it's just you know I'm a big believer in the fact that football has to get more and more ridiculous I'm like I'm, I'm very anti I'm not anti grassroots but I'm anti the anti modern football brigade. <laughs> yes, I, I, no, I know exactly I just, what you mean. I'm not like a FIFA guy or anything like that, but I, I I think it really I love the idea of football like hurtling towards a kind of like critical mass and perhaps like a, an implosion of sorts. Yes. I think we need to get there. You know, I was, I, you know that whole like 
big merry-go-round that was gonna that was nearly happened this summer. Mm. When that point, when like Harlem was gonna go to PSG and Mbappe is gonna like that, I wanted it to hit that point. I feel like, like we're real, very close. We're very yeah. Close. It was yeah, exactly like a real tipping point, just bang, yeah. right over the edge. And I was really ho- hoping for that. So I was kind of sad that didn't happen in a way. But yeah, I'm enjoying um, I'm, I'm enjoying the football. Yeah, I, I was. I think it's the I think it's the most exciting thing in the world right now. I, I think it's hit, got a golden age. You know, it's kind of like Hollywood in the fifties or like uh, sort of. <laughs> corporate rock in the 70s you know what i mean it's the most it's the it's, to to avoid it is uh you really and i think you saw that during the euros like a lot of people who weren't into football got into it because it was just a, the biggest the most exciting thing in the world right now so this is mezzet harland dix um for those of you who don't know the drill our star guest is going to pick three things that they love or simply fascinate them about football followed by three hates slash minor irritations about the game as well. Clive, kick us off with your first one, which which looks pretty clear-cut to me. I don't know how many layers they're going to be to this, but we'll find some. Uh, okay, so I've got players, there's something that I love, players visiting sick kids, uh, <laughs> particularly at Christmas in right. hospitals. Okay. Um, I'm not like the most like sentimental person. I'm not the most emotional person, but like something about those sort of situations when they're contextualised with footballers kind of like obviously particularly my team Chelsea players kind of really hits me in the uh hits me in the gut a little bit I find it very I find it a very emotional experience uh looking at those pictures and um I really like that it's it's a it's a it's a great tradition isn't it which I guess probably didn't see last year because of Covid I feel like there was there were some pictures of maybe one club went in somewhere like full fucking hazmat suits in <laughs> or something like that you know like so what a commitment we'll, to the classy yeah, touch yeah, 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 yeah 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 you get to see like um I know Aaron Wan-Bissaka behind a <laughs> some sort of like nuclear suit, maybe. But like, uh, yeah, no, I think I think they're brilliant. Um, one of the sort of few remnants of the old school, that sort of thing they did in the seventies, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's like uh, you go to a local hospital. Most a lot of the times, it's uh, the kids don't support the local team, mm. so they're just sort of getting a visit from like you know the, the so Man United fans getting a visit from like the Blackburn squad or something like that. <laughs> yeah. but, so there's you, a cutoff point at, wi- at, at which you stop thinking, "Wow, this kid must be incredibly starstruck and grateful that they're there," and a kind of cynical part of you starts to think, "Well, at this point, they're." probably starting to feel slightly underwhelmed is that a terrible way of looking at it well yeah i mean i was looking at some of them earlier actually and there's a lot of like um like like lee grant or like a youth team player that no one's ever heard of again there must be kids out there with like pictures themselves with like um like kennedy players like that do do you remember the time mum when i was in hospital and we met kennedy um (laughs) david louise is like a uh was a master of the form like he he sells that experience so well. He's so good at it. There's so many, if you search like David Louis sick children. He's like he's like fucking Diana. You know, <laughs> there's just so many of them, and he's so good at mm-hmm. it. It's a good point though, because I think there is an art to it. Like you, oh, you yeah. obviously you got to go all it, in, right, Dave? It must be pretty difficult for some of these guys who get you know young 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 people who might only be sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty themselves, but they're superstars or whatever. And all of a sudden, you've got to go and be this sort of this big, warm, comforting, supportive, happy person with with children who, in some cases, are uh, undergoing terrible um, misfortune. And I'm I'm sort of I don't know why I should be surprised, but I am always sort of surprised. And I go, oh, oh, he's good yeah. now. He's really nice. He can talk to the kids, like you know. And an extra layer of this, as Clive implied, is that when it's your own club's players. I mean, even tribalism even infiltrates this part of society. Because if you feel <laughs> you feel better about it because it's your your club's players yeah. doing it, how pathetic it is! It's pathetic, isn't it? But it is also true. But you you were exactly right at the start of this. Players visiting sick children in hospital is probably not even arguably the most timeless, classy touch of all. As you say, you could have seen it in the seventies as as often as you see it now. So we asked our listeners kind of what they thought was the the original classy touch. What what kicked off this kind of movement <laughs> that really has only kind of been a thing for the last 15 20 years maximum uh ryan gray was the first to write in and most topical of all he says there's nothing classier than visiting kids in hospital with club merch gifts at christmas which of course was always filmed for the end of season review video and uh, as a nice little addendum to this he says i was once one of those christmas hospital kids I got a lovely signed Christmas card and pencil case from Southampton, despite not being a supporter. He's basically the guy you're talking about. He is your man. Maybe it's a bit of a recruitment drive in some of these places as yeah, well. So hearts and minds, you know. Yeah. I think the athletics should start doing it. Send me into yeah. a hospital. Armed with well, um, three free subscriptions. Um, yeah. Definitely, we should, we should try it. If the marketing team hasn't thought of it, I'd be amazed. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so, moving on. Dylan E. says, a player handing their shirt after a game to a child they've absolutely blasted a shot at during the match. <laughs> presumably during the warm-up. Dave, th- yeah. I mean, Dave, this is this is almost contractually obliged classy touch territory. Like, if you don't do it, you're in real trouble. Yeah, and so I was in, uh, as we discussed the other day, I was at Norwich at the weekend, and it struck me that just how many footballers these days, regardless of whether they've smashed a ball into someone's face in the game or the warm-up, go over and give their fa- um, give their shirts or their boots or. It seems to be happening more and more these days, and I, I think Kids maybe that's with placards. No, I, no, I mean, I think I, I think there's probably a little bit of like that to it, and all, there's always the scr- you know, it, there's always there's a two different things. There's either you know the the the, the wiser player, the players who are wise to to some of the merchants out there who want to just get a shirt and flog it or whatever, or stick it on their YouTube channel, will like pick someone out and they'll like point ahead of time, say no, I'm giving it to this person here, yeah, yeah, terrible, and they'll give it. But then otherwise, or if if that doesn't happen, it's the traditional sort of screw the shirt up, throw it, and then I hate just that. Sc- I hate it in Wimbledon and I hate it in football. Stop and doing men. That. Yeah, stealing it out of the hands of a child. It's just, it's, it really does reveal the worst in humanity when there yeah. are people fighting over a shirt thrown from a professional sports person. There are also probably you know these days people who um, you know do the do the fans uh, do do the um, yeah, fans who do the uh, can I have your shirt thing with with a more achievable aim. Do you know what I mean? Like Ronaldo, you might not get it from Ronaldo, but you might get it from you know I don't know. Like say, this is where Lee, Lee Grant. Grant comes back yeah, in. Yeah, I don't know why I keep picking on Lee Grant, but yeah. <laughs> poor bloke. Yeah. Um, Jack Pitbrook. Um, so now perhaps getting to the sweet spot of where classy touches um, start. This is more perhaps sportsmanship territory. He says, surely Di Canio catching the ball that time. Was, I think it was at Goodison Park, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It um, was, yeah. I think that was, that was the Premier League's first real kind of moment of pure, pure sportsmanship. Followed up swiftly, as Jay Martin suggests, Clive, by Robbie Fowler saying it wasn't a penalty against Arsenal in 1997. These are oh. the two totems of yeah. then, humanity. But then he went to he went on to miss that penalty, didn't he? Yeah. And but yeah. I feel like over, uh, followed up. <laughs> over time, it's become sort of mythical that he missed it on purpose. But I they don't think he did, did he? He just got saved. It wasn't by the a very good penalty. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's quite hard to take an insincere penalty. <laughs> Do you know, you know, it's yeah. like you, you either just sky it and it's really obvious, or you, you, you know, you could just accidentally send the keeper the wrong way and score anyway. You know, I haven't, I've yeah. never thought about what my technique would be if I really wanted to miss a penalty out of guilt. I, I as you say, I wouldn't sky it because it would be too obvious. I'd yeah. maybe sort of, and putting putting any penalty wide looks a bit suspicious now anyway because no one does that. Really shit, Penenka. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but then there's a, yeah, has to be the right occasion. But yeah, yeah. you're right. Players visiting sick kids at Christmas, the ultimate classy touch. Tell us about your um, your second fascination of football. This is where I've seen a few. I've seen two of these, particularly from one team this season. Uh, it's the art of the second half capitulation. Like I'm really, there's, I just love the emotional energy of going in when you know you've got all, all to play for, going in either as nil nil or a score draw, and then coming out a million times worse. I mean, like Tottenham done it twice this season, haven't they? Against us last week and against Palace, which I think was. Was I think all the goals were after like seventy five minutes against Palace, weren't they? Um, I just fascinated what happens there. What how unmotivational does the half time have to be? It just you just come out and just fuck it up, just like you know, be utter crap, uh, fall apart. Players start turning each other. It's just such a, it's such a. Um, there are a lot of these sort of like um, sort of these uh, forces of momentum in football, aren't they? Sort of emotional emotion, emotional momentum, uh, which is one of the most fascinating things about the game. And that's um, kind of a, you don't see it that often because generally you have like a halftime bounce, right? Even if you end up losing the game, but the, or, or, you, or the game's already gone, you don't care. But the idea of being in the game, coming out worse in the second half, which Tottenham have amazingly managed twice this season, like it's, it's incredible, really. I'm, I am fascinated by the, the vital components of a second half capitulation, Dave, because they are, as Clive suggests, the trajectory of it is so much more dramatic than just a full, gentle thrashing over 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of... There are, there are very sort of certain signifiers of, of an impending capitulation, Dave. Panicked passes going out of play, a keeper sort of slicing it out for a throw. But when I think about all these little things that kind of bring forth a second half capitulation, I realise that the return of fans make things so much worse. It's at that point, when now fans are back, you realise how hard it must be for an away team to come back from, say, 2-0 down. 
because the schadenfreude is so suffocating. If you, if you miss a pass and you hear 30,000, 40,000 people saying, absolutely loving how bad you are at football, that must, be, that must be crushing. People never talk about how difficult that must be psychologically for a footballer, just having lots of people willing you to be shit. That must be so hard. Really hard. We had a capitulation on Sunday, just, right. just gone in Sunday league. It was the first half. How many it was people the first, were there? It was the first half capitulation, oh, right? Okay. We were 3 nil down very quickly. And I just felt so bad after the third goal went in. Like, it was just one of those days where just everyone was shit and, like, everything that happened went wrong. And I was like, oh, it really... So you're like, oh, I can't... You just really you you are rattled, and that's on a, that is on a, in a on Clapham Common when there is no one watching. Imagine being that person in in a stadium full of fifty, sixty thousand people. Where, you know, seventy five percent of which are willing you to keep on fucking it up. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. The the, the, the snowball <laughs> effect, Clive. You know, it's only going to go one way after a certain point. You knew that this was only going to happen. It was only going to go one way for Spurs after a certain point. It wasn't even the goal. It wasn't even the goal scoring. It was just the general vibe of it. You just said they're yeah. running out of. If you don't, passion. if you don't come out that that tunnel fired up, like and, and so you can see it in the players' eyes, you can still something something weird happened in the team talk. You know, there was either like an argument between the players, started blaming each other, or just they they've come out with a kind of a deeper uncertainty and they went in with it. And you can see you can see it in the eyes, you know, and they they that Tottenham came out and they were like they they're gonna they're gonna fall apart here and they and they did in style, you know. It's it's um it's um if it's like an act of God really, you know, it's sort of uh, things can't get any worse. We asked our listeners for the vital components of a second half capitulation. Um, some excellent contributions here uh, Collins T26 uh, uses the same case study he says I only need to glance back to Sunday Spurs Chelsea game for a reference the capitulator has to be in the game for at least a half either drawing or just a goal down before losing by at least three goals and someone has to get in on the act like Antonio Rudiger in stoppage time so that's the kind of the final turn of the screw isn't it when someone you wouldn't perhaps expect to score scoring away from home and just really just really ramming it home. I mean, that's that's the funniest thing about the the Spurs game. Like an N'Go, a glancing N'Golo Kante, like off the post goal, like a, a centre back scoring, a Timo Werner assist, like a set piece header from you know a guy who's not one of the taller people in the box. Like just like absolute crap, you know. I enjoy the um, body language of a capitulating team, Dave. Um, after a certain point maybe the sort of third or fourth goal, especially if it's happened in quick succession. My eyes are inevitably drawn to kind of maybe the senior defender in the middle of the six-yard box just to see what his reaction is. And it's, and it's and they sort of turn around to nobody in particular, sort of hold the hands out and say, what the fuck are you doing here? How, how dare they let this happen to me? Or a goalkeeper pretty much doing the same thing. You're right. Like watching the reaction of the, of your, of, yeah, of the capitulating team is always interesting. And I think for most fans, there will be a player at each club who you would, once they've stopped clapping... And, and trying to get people back up again and say, oh, come on, lads, we keep going and all that. Once their heads go down, you think, oh, OK, we're in trouble here. He Even he's not clapping anymore. Even his head's gone down now. We are in we are in big trouble. Because past a certain point, what is the point? If you're 4-0 down or something, you know, and then maybe there's 10 minutes left or, or whatever. I mean, one of these teams, you know, one of the Southampton players who've lost 9-0 in the last few seasons, like after the seventh goal's gone, what the hell are you, what's the point? Well, exactly, because then you're into, you are into absurd territory then, Clive. You're, you're into a situation where all the kind of protocols of being a professional footballer kind of should go out the window because, because the game is essentially gone. So the veneer must slip. So there must be at least one or two players on the team who are so selfish and think, I just think, I, I fucking fed up with a lot of you and you can see it in their body language big time yeah yeah i mean the, the my favorite shot of um it's like a the sky sports staple is the uh it's hard to explain it's like a i'd say probably three players very much in focus the goal's gone in one's got their head down yeah. one's sort of like yeah. head, hands behind their head a tableau the of despair yeah yeah you, the crowd is going the away crowd or the home crowd is going crazy behind them very much out of focus there's a missing element to that and it's and it's the player who has the who either who either takes it upon themselves or or is or they is bestowed upon them by the proximity of the ball in kicking the ball back. Like oh, how, yeah. how with, with, with what sort of energy do they kick that ball back? Is I'd say like after a, about goal five, it's a really limp kick back, isn't it? It's not yeah. angry anymore. It's just sort of yeah. poking it back in the general direction. Yeah. 
And then of course there's um, then of course there's kicking the ball back in the own net in, in frust- kicking scoring the the frustration goal. Yeah, the frustration yeah. goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. That's a real like five nil one. Okay, I yeah, I really enjoyed that one. Classic cliches territory. Tell us about your um, third enduring fascination of football. An open ended one. This one perhaps. Yeah, it's just um, Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> Uh, um, they are my enduring fascination. Sometimes I think I I like seeing Arsenal lose more than I like seeing Chelsea win. <laughs> I just I, I think they're one of the great British institutions. They're like they're like they're like the NHS or the two Ronnies. <laughs> they they are just like they just they just give so much to to our lives. I feel like everything they do is amazing. Like it's only got it's only getting better as well. Like I was talking about football, like generally getting better and more exciting and more interesting. Arsenal were doing very much they're becoming more of a character themselves like they started this season so beautifully losing to losing to a promoted team first game getting abs- getting done by us in a derby getting done by uh, City like worse than anyone possible you know that everyone's going to be a mauling and it was actually it was a horrible casual mauling in the end and then like the little bit of hope creeping back in which is which is always makes them perfect you know it's like it stops them making the decisions they need to do as well and you know, it's like this comes up. They have these ridiculous false idols. Like I was like, we need to play Martinelli and Balogun up front, and then Martinelli and Balogun do for up front, and they lose four 0 and stuff like that. And then they're sort of back to square one. They, I've, I've, my friend Tushin is an Arsenal fan. Like to, like called me out on Twitter saying that I was I was more obsessed with Arsenal than him, and it is true. I am. I'm completely obsessed with them. You you have set this up perfectly. I mean, you basically summarised all the bullet points I had written out for this because. And <laughs> but your your point about being more interested in seeing Arsenal lose than Chelsea win. It's a very interesting one because there, there, there might be some Arsenal fans listening to this who are, who are kind of, you know, frantically fast-forwarding 10 minutes because they just they don't want to hear people slagging their club off. At the same time, there's probably non-Arsenal fans who are fast-forwarding 10 minutes because they are sick of hearing about Arsenal. But on both counts, they need to stay because Arsenal's malaise, ongoing malaise, is, it's for everybody. That's the weird yeah, thing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, um, it isn't theirs to own. I feel like we all own it now. We, 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 we all had to basically endure the coverage of it for so long, and, and not just enjoying it. You know, if you don't support them, so it really is something for everybody in there. I feel like we've all participated in this over the last well, ten to fifteen years. To compare them to another great British, British institution, they're kind of like the royal family. I think we we have this sort of uh, there's yeah there's sort of like a public ownership of their their demise, isn't there? Um, Definitely, but they're yeah. They throw up all these amazing characters, and then you got like fan TV like compounding it. I mean, fan TV wouldn't work with any other club. Other clubs have tried it, and they're all crap. Like fan TV is just perfect. It's the the indignation and the um, that sense of uh, decline from the golden era, and also these sort of like the the galaxy brain takes. The, the Arsenal fans are amazing for galaxy brain takes. Like I've seen some some astonishing ones over the years. Uh, you know, let, let's play a uh, back four of all our fullbacks. Let's um, let's play Xhaka up front. You know, I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm making these up, but they're also right. I'm also fascinated with the saga of William Saliba, who's this sort of like prodigal son, who um, yeah. I, I reckon will never play a game for Arsenal. That'd be my prediction. <laughs> you're about so Saliba. you're so right with with you said they had these false idols. They they, they yeah. really do seem to have yeah these sort of fringe players that they get either they either come up through the youth ranks or they or they say they buy young from from abroad and it's like yeah they're going to be the one and they sort of play a bit and they play in a league cup or Europa Europa League and but it isn't Arsenal always... fans think they're great but then we never see them and then my Arsenal mate was like oh but he's really good and when he plays he'll be great but he never they're never great yeah but it yeah. isn't just about good players it's not just about promising players it's about Characters. Arsenal go through cult heroes like no other club. Uh, yeah. Their cult heroes seem to last about six months each. Kolasinac, just for being massive, for example. Uh, a lot of Arsenal fans denied this, but it was definitely definitely the case. There's a thing Arsenal fans do when it's like because they're, they, they're, there's a big thing about and they did it, they did just did it with Kolasinac and they don't, just done it with Party. It's exactly the same um, uh, sort of uh, trajectory. It's um, okay. They always get this reputation of being a bit feeble in in certain positions, and then they sign like a big bloke. They sign Kolasinac or Party, and they're like, "Yes, the beast has arrived to save Arsenal." And then the uh, like the uh, you know the club, the media, they push it. Well, Jack, that whole thing about Jacker and the keys. Remember that? Yeah. It's all that kind of stuff. And there's this sort of like post-Viera vacuum. They're always desperate. And Adam's vacuum. They're always desperately trying to fill. And these guys are just seen as like duds within a couple of weeks. Always got, like, the expectation is so high. And they're often sort of misrepresented in what they do and, and what have you. Just because they look hard. There's got a lot of blokes who look hard that have turned out to be the opposite of that. And uh, there's so many of them. Parties that already. No party, no party, whatever. What, what That feels so long ago now. 
I've got I've got two points to make now here as as a, as an attempt to make a counterpoint here. First, Clive, to you. Well, you've presented this case so far as Arsenal fans and Arsenal as a concept being so such an island from the rest of football uh, that it, it you know behaves in its own little ecosystem, and we just sort of just look in and, and enjoy it. Are they really any different to any other club? Are they really any different to any other set of fans? Do, are they really reacting to their situation in a different way to anybody else would? Well, I think this is the interesting thing is I think they're pioneers. I think they um, I think a lot most clubs are going the way Arsenal have been for a while you know the the partisan stuff I see a lot of it creeping into Chelsea now which which Mm. ghouls me no end (laughs) but like um, I see a lot of these sort of micro arguments and camps and um, factionalism going on like you know there's sort of like a pro Mount camp a pro Havertz camp a pro whatever you know kind of thing and um, they've been doing that for a long time and they've, they've always been Arsenal fans have been really big on social media and like like fan TV, they 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 pioneered that kind of fan media stuff. So, so I think fans um, of other clubs are kind of jealous of the way they're going about things. Yeah, they actually, look Gen- in, genuinely in their misery, enjoying themselves more than anybody else. Yeah, and I've seen um, I've seen it in like championship clubs and stuff like that. You know, sometimes you get like one for one a quiet day on Twitter. Some some um, Sheffield Wednesday, you end up on a thread of Sheffield Wednesday fans, and you see them coming out with these like really goonery sort of like reactionary takes. You like cut like saying that like. We don't want Gary Cahill. We need someone to play the ball out more. And then they'll cite like some teenager from some Premier League academy they should be getting instead. Like Arsenal fans, re- I, 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 Arsenal fans have been like that for years. But everyone's kind of an Arsenal fan now. That's a good. That's a good point. They're, they're, they're Arsenal are, are sort of great for being the club that somebody like Graham Souness or any one of those guys will go. You know what, Chris Wood. He'd do a job at yes. Arsenal. Why haven't they yeah, got yeah. Gary Cahill? Why don't they go out and yeah. get... They're always the case study for this hypothesis. Yeah. Always. Dave, Clive kind of compared Arsenal to the NHS as a national institution. <laughs> and um, Being overrun by Americans. Well, being yeah. ruined by the American takeover. <laughs> a very interesting parallel for so many reasons. But um, much like the NHS, I don't really understand its inner workings. How, and, and I don't really understand how it maintains itself. And I sympathise to an extent, with people who, who may not understand football economics on a, on a grand scale. And they don't understand how modern clubs are structured. And I kind of include myself in both of those camps. And those people probably just don't understand why Arsenal is still shit. There, there's no logic to them, apart from being this kind of banter club, who are kind of now at DNA level, comically bad, or at least, you know, average. A lot of people cannot understand how they haven't managed to turn things around in 16 years of since, since they last won something, you know, important. It must. It's a huge mystery to people, surely. They are definitely an institution, and and that's something that they sort of perpetuate themselves as yeah, well. Definitely. You know, there's still the whole thing around, even though they're not at Highbury, the sort of marble halls and the bust of Herbert Chapman and all and Sir Chips Keswick, and there's all this sort of there's all these sort of figures that surround the club that you know just it just is stuck even though it is obviously Arsene Wenger and everything's very progressive very modern they brought about change in English football they're still sort of anchored and weighed down I suppose by by their sort of past but I, you know the interesting comparison is, is Manchester United like they, yeah, no one thought they were going to continue to be shit for a very long time that's exactly it and they weren't mm. and even through Fergie he had his ups and downs but he always came back mm. and when they got rid of him yeah it was catastrophe with Moyes but then they got Van Gaal and mm. they sort of were okay in Mourinho they're okay and they muddled their way through they've been shit but they're sort of still there whereas Arsenal there's just as we sort of discussed on the crisis episode there's this been slow steady decline yeah. and I think that's the thing that you know apart from the FA Cups there's just been, they had it all. They got given everything. They literally won the league without losing a game, like the most amazing thing in Premier League history, really. And then they just had nothing else like it since. And it's just now, I think it's like full circle. That This Arsenal is now the Arsenal that I knew when I first started liking football that was managed by Bruce Rio. Right. That's basically oh, where they are again. If it spans generations, then you know you really are you know, in mm. trouble. Okay, having alienated perhaps about 8 to 12% of our listenership over the last 10 to 15 minutes. Um, I think we'll leave it there. But it is, it is a fascinating section of football consumption. Uh, I think we've established that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, welcome back to Mesut Harland Dix. Clive Martin is with us. Clive, it's now time to take us down the various avenues of your footballing hates slash niche irritations. What have you got for us first? I just realised how much the Arsenal one uh, sounded like a hate thing. But yeah, it's not, I don't, fine. I, do, I, mean, I do love Arsenal. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, it's the Class of 92 content machine. <laughs> okay. And it's a funny one because, yes, they did dominate a lot of Premier League history, but they're also intent on rewriting Premier League history in their own image. Every time I turn on the telly, there is some sort of like, like for instance, just this morning when I was actually thinking about this before I even, there was a thing about Gary Neville's uh, set up some kind of social enterprise. And it's a nice idea, stuff like that. For some reason, it's got the the numbers 92 in it. Yeah, the University like, of 92 is what he's exactly, been plugging today. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. There's this orthodoxy sort of like um, just creating this um, this content machine that turns out everything from um, boring fucking hairdryer, stories about the hairdryer on Sky Sports, Um Roy Keane talking about like uh, leadership, what leadership means. Um, did you the see cliff. that? Um, the yeah, cliff. you know, you, you know that um, Premier League years documentary I do on the BBC right now. Oh, the fever pitch, uh, fever pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a bit at the end of that where it's like, um, you know, they're 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 sort of going through the early days of football, and then it's like, uh, but then someone was really needed to. Um, take football into a new generation amongst people that have never watched a game before and they do this like corny intro and David Beckham sort of walks in the mm. room and sort of sits down the, and goes well, alright the documentary is made by David Beckham's I know. production that's company what, that's what I was about to say like imagine the ego it takes um, to make this documentary in which you about your team basically and that you sort of present yourself as this sort of hero at the end of the first episode who comes in and changes everything. And there's so much of that with these guys like the uh, they made that film and that fucking Salford City stuff like I, I, what, does anyone does anyone ever ask them what's going with Salford City these days? That whole thing. And I, I did. This, I actually interviewed um, Phil Neville about it. He gave this very like sincere, like tub thumping interview about you know his plans for Salford City. And I've not heard a peep about it. And like into Miami sort of ties into that now and so like They're just um, they're omnipresent and they're annoying and they're just this sort of like um, they're like the I, they're like the Beatles. Clive, you mentioned that that you mentioned the word kind of omnipresent. So, I mean, you're right. They are everywhere. You you cannot watch a, a football broadcast without a class of 92 pundit somewhere yeah. along the line. But it, but it's kind of, it's quite a benign omnipresence. They're not really pushing an agenda, any, in any big agenda. I mean, I mean, Neville it's a brand, is, though, Gary Neville is sort of, but otherwise it's, 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 it's not even that massively egotistic. They're just there because they're part of the footballing furniture. I don't think, I don't no, know how self-propelled it is. It's a brand, though. It's brand yeah. 92. And I think if you were probably to start looking into companies' house and stuff like that, you really would sort of like start to see their, um, you know, the, the machinations of it all. There's a class of 92 brand, isn't it? Which I think they're determined to squeeze every bit of money out, every bit of content you could possibly imagine mm. out of. Do you think they've um, got any stories about Ferguson left? Surely not. Only the ones we actually do want to hear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The ones they won't say, you know. Yeah, I'd love to hear what he's actually like. Yeah, Dave, um, what does nobody ever talk about the class of '93? Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it just—it feels weird to even say the words. I mean, it must be a sort of terrible sequel. Um, but I mean, the most damning thing you can say about the class of '93 is that um, it has at least two players you can't click on in Wikipedia. So that—that that was the real fall from grace. <laughs> but Neville, Phil Neville, who—I mean, I imagine this must have been said quite a lot—is not of the class of 92 and yet appears in every single photo opportunity they have. That's the biggest yeah. scandal of this, isn't it? And like poor old Robbie Savage, who actually was in the class of 92 at Manchester United. Yeah. But, he's you know, Lester. he's just too less. So close to being part of, obviously he's had a, you know, forged a very successful career in his own right, but so close to being, he could have been part of the club and like Ben Thornley. Yeah. Yeah. And all those they lads. Present that narrative, don't they? The one that didn't make it. But Savage mm. doesn't get a look in, you know, because he just doesn't, yeah. doesn't fit the brand. He is airbrushed out of it, isn't he? Really? He's always yeah. in that. He's always in that the team photo, and you can recognise him. But he's not. Yeah, he's not even presented as one of the ones that missed out. Mm. Yeah, I want, I want to see John O'Kane on BT Sport. Uh, you know, I've, I want to see these players given an airing. Yeah, no. But, but on the flip side of that, Beckham, I've always felt because Beckham is not. He, obviously, he's part of the class '92 in terms of his, his playing career, and he was part of the kids, part of Fergie's fledglings, mm. who was to give them their original title. I, sorry, um, just to interrupt you there, I heard Pep's pups this oh, week. 
Which is, I think is the nadir. That is a disgrace. Of this, no. of this intermittent genre. Peps pups. Peps pups is the Doesn't pits. even play them. Exactly. <laughs> You can't get yeah. like a collect- collective name if all you ever do is like get a little run out and then leave the pups. Yeah, they're That's up for the, adoption. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, but Beckham, I think that there's a part of him that I think probably doesn't want to be part. Of, he's not really part of the gang, is he? He's never, he never, you know, you've got the Manchester lads. The sort yeah. of local Manchester lads who always kind of, you know, they're always they're all still based in Manchester. They do things in Manchester. They're Salford. Even though Beckham, I think, is is Beckham actually part of the Salford thing as well? I think he probably is on paper. But now yeah. he's got into Miami. That's his thing. I don't think Beckham really is bothered about the class of 92, but he can't get away from it. On the other hand, well, he- I do feel like, Clive, every friendship group has that, has that kind of person who, who's just a little bit, well, a lot more successful than the rest of them. And then will make it back for the odd get together. And they say, oh, here he is. And he's like, he's tanned and he's just... He's just he's just much better off than the rest of them, but still sort of slides back into it nice and easily. I'd like to think that's me amongst my friends. Yeah, but, um, yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm more like Ronnie Woolworths. <laughs> that's exactly how I see you. Okay, Clive, tell us about your second footballing hate slash niche irritation. It is, and again, there is a class of ninety two crossover in this. It's the predictability of the <laughs> the heated debate, mm. uh, the inevitability of it, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, every time something vaguely controversial happens on a game of in-game football um like uh, not like political stuff but, but like um you know a handball an offside uh, a decision of sorts whatever it's the inevitability of an argument between Michael Richards and Graham Zunas about it <laughs> I just I just I just want some of the, these days even with like the Reese James uh, handball incident I just yeah, it's very you know difficult decision to work out what's going on there but like I just didn't want anyone to talk about it. It's got to that point. I just like there's just lot. I just rather these things happen. Let sleeping dogs lie. Let's not talk about it. No, you can't you know, have that. So it's, it's, it's impossible. So boring. Yeah, and there's this, again this like partisanship, this factionalism, like a need, this need to take a side, and this need to adopt a persona in, from all the commentators. It's so boring, and it's boring on Sky Sports, and it's boring on Talk Sport <laughs> with Simon Jordan. <laughs> they're always going on about something as well, and it's just like oh, it's just like. Football broadcasting as panto, and there's there's so much like interesting stuff being done in the sort of field of football journalism, and um, but like it, it doesn't, it's just that people really still think that an argument about a, a, an offside is is like the, the peak of football broadcasting. It's awful, can't stand it. I've so I find that this is a really interesting point. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, actually. So it, over the last couple of years, right, I've been getting more into say, NFL and sort of taking a bit more interest in American sports, partly due to being exposed to them for working for The Athletic, right? And there are a couple of shows over there. There's one in particular on Fox, which is, um, which is Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp. Skip's like an old journalist, kind of a bit like, you know, a bit like Adrian Durham or, you know, or you know, someone like that who's kind of there to whip up opinions and Shannon used to play in the NFL, right? But they're both just take any of the debates you see on English radio or TV and multiply it by a million and Americanize it. And and I sit there and I love it. I'm watching it and I'm like, this is brilliant. It's really entertaining. They're really charismatic. They're going back and forth. But I think the reason I love it is because I don't actually know what they're talking about. You haven't built up the fatigue. You haven't built up the fatigue. I I haven't got the intricacies of the NFL or the NBA. I don't know if their points are valid or not. I'm just loving it for the entertainment. Whereas I think with football, I know too much about football because I can immediately spot when they're talking shit and when they've got a point or where they over-egging it and it just doesn't land with me so i think football fans in a way this is like sports broadcasting as entertainment it's probably increasingly not for us i think this is a perfectly good point but um when we talk about sort of the endless debates that cycle each week now clive i know i know you know this so i i i I feel like a little bit of your complaint is disingenuous because you must yeah, know no, I think it is. stuff like this isn't just the oil of the machine. It is the machine. You can't have a Friday to Monday Premier League news cycle without this stuff. There would be nothing left. You would literally have nothing else to talk about or have spoken to you. There's nothing left. I know, yeah. And I know that the game itself hinges on some of these moments and they do define games and they are up for debate and they are uh, there are there are, there are vaguenesses there and stuff like that you do need to talk about. But this is very much my... I'm being incredibly selfish here and it does my head in. And I feel like I've watched enough football in my life to, to do without it, yeah. you know? To start, to start, I, I hate I almost hate seeing it happen because I've got to hear about it again. Do you know it, what I mean? It it's like a Christmas, Christmas dinner argument, you know, about yeah. like um, 
I don't know, some sort of controversial culture war issue. Mm. You know, it's oh, so boring. I don't want to hear about from either side about this stuff. It, it kind of puts me off, Dave, of watching Match of the Day because yes. I know I'm going to be exposed. I, I kind of want to watch the goals even though I've probably seen them on Reddit or something. I know I'm going to be subjected to two minutes of was this or was this not a handball and what does this mean for the next few years of football? I, I, I don't want to listen to it, but I, but I guess we have to appreciate that some people do. Well, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. That's exactly my point. I think we've also, <laughs> everyone on this call has just seen too much football. Yes. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we are more enthusiastic than we, than we sound, I'm sure. Okay, so I, I asked our listeners, Clive, how they bookend the Friday to Monday Premier League news cycle. What is that? What's kind of the, what heralds the start of it? of a whole new fresh set of controversies and what is the harbinger of it all and and what brings it to a close. So kicking off with Dave O'Leary, who says the Premier League news cycle begins with the BBC's never much illuminating Premier League countdown and press conferences Friday live blog and ends with some whipped up dispute on Monday night football that bleeds into Tuesday morning, rinse and repeat. So he, 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 I feel like he's world weary enough to get us started. Has he got it just about right? Yeah, it's that kind of that That's kind of quite niche. The dreams uh, and then and then dismantling it all by Tuesday. Yeah, I mean the press conference roundup is really that's someone who watches it, someone who consumes a lot of football media. You can tell that. Yeah, I think that's about right. I, th- I always think um, the um, running concurrently to the twelve thirty kickoff um, football focus, sort of like uh, the profiles on football focus, still like the start. The, feel like a setup of a weekend mm. a lot of the time. You know, like so innocent, a, uh, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or a slightly determined interview with like uh, Mo Salah or something like that. You know, um, and that, that sort of like very much contextualizes the games coming up. Even though some of those games are already one of those games already kicked off. It's a set menu, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. But you yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. Dave, I feel like we now know exactly when it starts and finishes. Nick Murphy says Garth Crooks's team of the week is the traditional Monday curtain raiser to the new week. That really is, that Excellent. wipes the slate clean, doesn't it, Dave? Yeah, very good. And it, it's sort of weekend preview counterpart Loro's predictions. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is, that's it. They are the two cornerstones oh, man. of a Premier League I can't believe they're still doing. I can't believe they're still doing Loro's predictions. I think the level of fame you need to be on Lawrenson's predictions has is at an all-time low, Clive. Oh, man. Yeah, it's terrible, terrible. Some real nobodies. Did you ever see Idris Elba's one? No. Idris Elba did it. Um, he'd obviously really not watched football in a long time. Mm. And um, he's been living in LA, but but he was desperate to sort of like stay relevant. So he's just sort of doing this like umming and ahhing, mm. going like, ooh, wolves, wolves, <laughs> two. Yeah, it's just like the way you're trying to sell it. Like, I'm still invested in this thing. Yeah. Jack Pierce, I think, has provides the deluxe. Um, it begins when the first manager of the weekend walks into a training ground room with a vending machine hot drink to speak to the press and ends the moment that Jamie Carragher asked the Monday Night Football guests what the best moment of their career was. Oh, That's, wow. That is the ultimate slice of Premier League culture. When when Monday Night Football gets to historical chat, that's when I know my weekend is over, Clive. That's that's my mm. Premier League consumption is yeah. over. It's a long weekend, isn't it? It's Friday to Monday. Really long? It's not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friday, Friday morning to Monday evening. Yeah, Monday is just, without any questions asked, just co-opted as part of the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you've got it to was, have reaction. It, you've got to have fallout. Which was actually, that, that was in that Premier League years documentary. Cause they, obviously, Monday Night Football is, a, is an NFL thing. And they were saying that, like, uh, I think one of the, it was things like David Dean, one of the sort of Premier League architects, was saying um, they really wanted to copy that model where the, the weekend's not over until Monday Night Football's not over. But only recently have we really seen that, I think. It's become like part of the, uh, yeah, this set menu of uh, football media of the weekend, yeah. I've never thought about how much of an impact it's had on the entire football industry in terms of stringing out its content and its income. Um, I've never yeah. thought about it like that. But yeah, I guess we all kind of benefit from it away or suffer, depending on how yeah. Yeah, your perspective. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Your third footballing hate slash irritation. 
This is perhaps the just 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 hate, just pure <laughs> hate, unbridled un, un hatred. Again, a potentially very open-ended one, but I'm I'm fascinated to hear what you're hear you state your case for this one. Look, there's not many um, individuals I hate in the game at all, but one of them is Andre Villas-Boas. You hate him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, I've got several reasons for this. Um, I'm not not just going to say dropping JT, <laughs> like <laughs> my dad would say. I, I, I always thought there's there's a horrible um, sense of privilege to him uh, without getting too political about it. He very much feels like a rich, which he was. He was a rich kid who kind of gamed his way into it uh, via, via meeting Bobby Robson in the, the same apartment block they lived in in Lisbon, some sort of luxury apartment block. Not just to hate him for his, his background, but he I always thought he has the vibe of a guy who uh, read Moneyball and <laughs> thinks he can do it. You know, he's like, and that transcends, he's one of those guys who just looks at something and thinks he has that, that in, innate confidence, doesn't he? Yep. That he thinks he can do anything. And that transcends right up to him trying to do the bloody Dakar rally. You know, he, he's like um, he's like Lord Mountbatten or someone like that. He just thinks he can like turn his hand to anything, and he's like, but you know, he hasn't done that well in football. And you saw, I think you saw that side to him when he um, he dug out that young Celtic player that was going to go to Marseille. He said he didn't want him publicly, like really, really dug him out publicly. And it's just this horrible like sort of attitude he has. That whole thing about when he was like sleeping in a pod at Stamford Bridge also really weirds me out. Do you know this? Uh, yeah, I um to kind of extend his kind of rich kid uh, narrative. He had a kind of like a gap year equivalent. He was the um, the technical director for the British Virgin Islands national team at the age of twenty one, yeah. um, which exactly. I feel like no other manager could ever have done. It's a data it's a data job, isn't it? I imagine he was just looking through some sort of database, looking at players you could potentially um, uh, you know qualify for that citizenship and sort of going through it. You know, I just so there's something snide about him and like um, some of the like decisions he made at Chelsea were awful and. Um, He's been underwhelming everywhere he's been, but really arrogant, like not very like snappy, snarky kind of guy. With this sort of nasty sort of like thin beard that he has. On that point, <laughs> on, on, on the yeah. point of his kind of innate confidence and arrogance, I find it quite impressive. I, I, I agree with you on some of these points. I, I wouldn't go full out to say he's a fraud because I'm not quite sure <laughs> what the elements of being a fraud are just yet. But yeah. um, there are some elements of his arrogance and confidence which I find genuinely impressive. He did an interview recently with the Athletics' James Horncastle, and there were two two nuggets of pure gold. First, he kicked off the entire interview by saying, I am, let's say, a bit of a hipster. <laughs> no manager has ever said those words. I feel like no one no one involved in football should ever embrace those no. actual words. Um, so that's a great um, start. In what, in what way? What way did he qualify that? I, it, was, it was kind of left unexplained, but the idea was that, yes, he, he does indeed kind of follow far from oh, okay. football, but not to the extent that the yeah. caricature says he does. And then right, later yeah. on, a genuinely brilliant quote. This is about him being interviewed for jobs. He says, when I have these conversations with owners and presidents, the day somebody says to me, Andre, we're interviewing you because you have a 68% win ratio in football and we need to win. That's why we're interviewing you. I'll say, congratulations. That's the right answer. Oh, oh, oh man. That's bad. I can't get one round just for having read that quote. Maybe you are wrong. Mm. That's like um, like Patrick Bateman saying that or something, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Like that's that's like that's a really psychopathic thing to say, actually. But I think. it's still impressive. I still find it impressive that someone would talk like that and get away with it. But does he get away with it though? I mean, he's sort of like very much off the. Uh, one we round, isn't it? Bit. He's uh, probably very influential in some of the things that he did in terms of like you know using you know some of the players. He's signed some really good players and what have you. But um, and you know, just his. There's a lot more Andre Villas-Boas in the world now, but just the man himself, yeah, he's, I, I don't like him at all. He creeps me out. There is an element to him, yeah. You mentioned the other Andre Villas-Boas of the world. I feel like he was the one that kind of went over the top first. Yeah. He went into no man's really? land. Like Arsenal, and, a pioneer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To his he's, own detriment. He sort of spawned a million, like, like Watford managers. You know? <laughs> yeah. Dave, how do you feel about that? Wouldn't be surprised if he, he one is day manage Watford darkened our door. Yeah, yeah. yeah completely. Yeah. Right. I, I want to pick up on a, a an excellent little snapshot of, of mid-career VS Boas. This is when he was at Spurs and perhaps being a little bit too front foot, a little bit too clever for his own good. This is him at a press conference um, being questioned about not giving Hugo Lloris his debut just yet. Andre, can you understand Hugo Lloris's frustration about the situation? Because you did pay quite a lot of money for him. What is the frustration? Well, the frustration of not being in the team. How do you know? Well, he didn't play last night, did he? How do you know he's frustrated? No, I'm asking you. Is he, do, you do you find him frustrated? No. You're saying that, uh, what do you think about Hugo Lloris' frustration? Uh, I'm asking you what kind of frustration. Has, has he actually come to you and said, look, no, this not, is... He's is not he... frustrated. 
but so he's obviously happy with the situation. Obviously, yeah. Clive, I quite like seeing a manager kind of interrogate the the kind of sort of semi-automated media cycle. That's that's a good thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, he, it's a good thing to do. But then he also goes back on himself, doesn't he? He says, "I'm not frustrated." He's not frustrated. And then at the end, he goes, "So he is frustrated." And then he goes, "Obviously." <laughs> so he hasn't, just lost he hasn't his really like yeah, yeah. He hasn't really sort of. Um, proved himself he hasn't really backed his own horse there has he mm. Dave Andre Villas-Boas's name came up in a piece um, Tom Warville wrote the other day about um, Jose Mourinho's thousand games as a manager <laughs> my diligent job as a sub-editor I realised that um, the name I was looking at was in fact a different Andre Villas-Boas who was at Porto at the same time um, he was just a jobbing defensive midfielder who, um, who was knocking around the Porto B team around the time they won the Champions League. Went on to play for Maritimo, Portimonense on loan, finished his career at Rio Ave in 2017. Uh, played for the Portugal under-20s in 2004. Just had a much more leisurely existence. This kind of parallel Andre Villas-Boas. I'm fascinated by this guy. We need to get hold of him, surely. So is this like the, the Portuguese equivalent of the... Is it what's the, What are the two Stevens players? That uh, oh, Gary Stevens. Had? Gary Stevens. Yeah, this is the Gary yeah. Stevens that lives in Thailand. Yeah, uh, and uh, just has a great time on the beach. And that I don't know which which Gary Stevens, um, but they definitely get called up like and interviewed, thinking, and the interviewer doesn't even know that it's the wrong Gary yeah. Stevens yeah. from time to time. So I bet the other Andre Vias Boas has definitely got loads of media requests to do interviews about the Dakar Rally and stuff. This, this Villas Boas even had a go, Clive, at being the proper Villas Boas after retiring at the age of thirty four in twenty seventeen. He spent a year scouting for Rio Ave before becoming their sporting director. He resigned four years later following their relegation. Just couldn't do it. Just couldn't be a wow. full Villas-Boas. The next twist, perhaps the final twist in the Villas-Boas story, is that he's still only 43. He is yeah. barely two years older than Mourinho when he won the Champions League with Porto. He is still comfortably a young manager. Um, yeah. How much mileage is there left in the Villas-Boas narrative? So how, if you think of how the old were you doing when he was Chelsea manager then? So what, how long ago was that now? So, yeah, he was, was 33. Like, eight and eight. Yeah, he's, he's an old, he would have been a really old looking 33. That beard, it's the beard and the sort of, and the deep voice. Mm. I guess he had a bit of a sort of like, uh, again, like, you know, knows how to present himself with a sort of air of authority, which is uh, something like dropping JT, that kind of, uh, no, you need min more minerals than that. Only Benitez, <laughs> fair enough, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, but the thing is, we all knew he was a fraud from day one. In the first press conference, when he said, I am the group one, you think, oh, that's rubbish. Yeah, that was one of the, that was one that of the worst ones terrible. that Chelsea have had. <laughs> the group one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Terrible. Yeah, but, you know, if you put on the spot and you haven't got one ready, what are you going to say? I don't know which yeah. one I would choose. I just don't know. He, he also tried to do Mourinho, like, um, do a bit of sex appeal and sort of quickly people realise he has zero sex appeal. <laughs> You know, he's like, he's not bad, he's a, not a bad looking guy, but he's just like, he's very unsexy. Like, yeah, he's, he's one of his, one of his ancestors, well, close ancestors is, is like a Viscount or something. His brother's an actor. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this should all add up to something quite sexy, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, quite sort of, he could be in sort of Portuguese succession, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah. He has that sort of air about him, yeah. Exactly right. Okay, well, this is it. So we've... We've covered players visiting sick kids at Christmas as the ultimate classy touch. We've um, dissected the art of the second half capitulation, which was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I feel like we've solved Arsenal Football Club. So well done to you, mm. Clive. I don't know if that's what you wanted, um, but that's it. We've, I, we've... I, want, I, want Ed, I want Edu's job. That's what I want. <laughs> you could sneak into the Arsenal hierarchy and nobody noticed. There's so many people yeah, in just, there. Um, sign Troy Deeney. Yeah, no one would ever know. Uh, the class <laughs> of 92 content machine, um, the endless... Friday to Monday Premier League news cycle and a frankly bitter, cruel dismantling of Andre Villas-Boas, whose career is only just getting started, quite frankly. Uh, uh, there you go. Uh, uh, as are all of ours. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Clive. We really appreciate your time. Oh, no worries. Enjoy hope, it. I hope nice you've got a lot get... off your chest. Yeah, exactly. It was cathartic. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Thanks to you, Dave, too. Thank you. And see everyone next time. Cheers. The Athletic.